We visited the uh, Children of the Light uh, Boys Orphanage there. Um, the, the next picture that you're going to see is a picture of the gate is the only entrance in and out of the facility there. And um, the facility is surrounded by a 10-foot uh, fence. It's about a two-and-a-half-acre property uh, with barbed wire on top. And, and the reason for that is not to keep the boys in but to keep the bad guys out. There are 23 boys that are cared by Bill and Mary uh, Kwiatkowski, and you might uh, recognize that name, ranging from ages uh, 6 to about 23 years old. Um, the, the old house that you see here was where the project was first uh, started about 18 years ago with uh, Bill and Mary and two little boys. Um, their mission there is to provide love and hope to the homeless street children of Honduras to provide them with an alternative life than on the streets, showing by way of words and deeds the love and mercy and compassion of God. Um, uh, this is uh, Brother Bill and Mary Kwiatkowski. Uh, they're mom and dad of, of 23 boys, uh, and they're treated with a lot of respect. They, they're just loved. And, and, and it's awesome how they just put all their needs in God's hands. They... Um, they know that the only way anything's ever going to get done there is through the love of God and help from other believers. Um, Bill and Mary, um, they trust in the Lord during these difficult economic times. Um, they've lost about 60% of their financial support uh, from groups that normally come to help there. They depend on these groups, these mission teams like ours, to help uh, continue the the projects and the progress there at the facility. Um, where they're, they're used to having about five or six mission trips come annually there to help, now there's two or three. Um, and like I said, they count on these mission trips to help keep the project running. Uh, about three years ago, uh, the Lord called Cindy and uh, Michael there to help. Uh, they're now helping the, the, with, with the project there. Um, but they can only do uh, so much without our help. Uh, this is part of the group. It was, very, it was very difficult to have everybody in one photo because school was in session. Kids were going in and out. Um, but this is uh, about as many as we could get at one time to kind of show you uh, where the kids, um, some of the kids there. So thank you uh, for your support. And um, also, we took about six bags. This is part of the blessing. We took about six duffel bags of clothes, and one was full of toothpaste and toothbrushes. And uh, we were expected to pay a pretty high fee for extra baggage and weight. When we got to the counter, we had a letter asking the airlines for some special consideration because of for the reason we were carrying the bags. And as soon as I presented the, the people at the ticket counter with a the letter, they said, we don't want to see it. There's nobody here to look at it anyway. Just put the bag on there. We didn't have to pay a penny for them. Uh, praise God for that. Um, uh, also, uh, when we got to customs at the other end in um, La Ceiba, the only bag they pulled aside was the one carrying the toothpaste and toothbrushes, and um, they made me open it, ran it through the scanner, and as soon as they saw it and I explained them what it was, they closed it back up and told us to go on. So... Praise God for that. Thank you.
Good morning. This was um, my third trip to get to go to Honduras. God's blessed me with the opportunity three times now, and I'm uh, really thankful that he's opened the door because every time I've gone, um, I feel like I leave a little piece of myself behind. Um, it's hard to go and see what the children are going through and how the people are living and not be touched by it and gripped by just the um, enormous things we have here that we take for granted, the everyday things, the availability of just being able to get supplies and things that um, we have here. And so I'm just touched every time I go. Um, we had a great group that went, and I didn't really know everybody when we started the trip, but by the end of the week, we knew each other pretty well. <laughs> I don't know if that was good or bad, <laughs> but we did. Um, Honduras is a beautiful country. The, it, the natural beauty just overwhelms. There, um, it's mountainous in the area we were in. Um, we were also right on the coast, so we were a few blocks from the ocean, and then the mountains are behind us, and it's a very, it's just beautiful. It's lush and green, and in the midst of that is the poverty and the need and you see that constantly when you walk the streets and you see the homes and the people and how they live. Uh, but it just reaffirms to me God's love, God's grace, and that um, when they have little else, they at least have the natural beauty to look around and see and just know that God is, is there with them. Um, it is a very poor country, and there are a lot of people in need. And you see that need when you see Bill and Mary working and you see the faith they have in God and as we would go back um, into the city at nights and spend evenings, we could see the other side. We could see where these boys would have ended up if it weren't for Children of the Light and the opportunities that Bill and Mary have given them to get an education, to get to know God. And it's just, it, it was a very strong contrast, and it was brought out quite a few times. Um, getting to know the boys was great. Um, they're very grounded in their faith, and they do have daily devotions. And they do attend church on Sundays with Bill and Mary. And you can tell just that they are learning from great examples in Bill and Mary. And that they have faith that God is going to complete every work that he has promised them that he's going to do there. Um, going on my first mission trip was a complete leap of faith for me. I sat just like you are today and I listened to someone talk about it. And I just said, I just felt God speaking to me and telling me, I'm going to give you an opportunity and I want you to go. And I went home that day, I think. I told my husband, I said, next trip I'm going. And I'm very thankful for my husband who stayed home and took care of my family while I was gone. And uh, I was a little nervous and scared on that first mission trip. But I just knew I would have to rely completely on God. And I've come to realize that there's no clearer way for us to see God work than when he removes us completely from our comfort zone. And I was completely out of my comfort zone in Honduras. I don't speak Spanish. I had four years of French. doesn't help a lot. Um, so I'm thankful for Zach, who um, was our guide and interpreter for us most of the week. Um, but I, I've come to realize that when God puts you in a situation where you have to rely fully on him, it does nothing but increase your faith and help you grow spiritually. Um, and I'm up here this morning not because there's anything good in me, but because I hope just one person who hears this today will commit to go, and because I want to see God's glory known throughout the nations. And this morning on the way to church, there was a song on the radio, and it's called Motion of Mercy by Francesca Battistelli. And there was a line in it that just kind of gripped me in that moment. It said, I'm, I'm, excuse me, I'm filled with a love that calls me to action. And that's what I hope for each of you.
Good morning. Um, several months ago, Mike was uh, preaching, and in his message, he, um, he made this statement. He says, um, you know, when we, when we talk about mission trips or think about mission trips, you know, in our mind, we think of, uh, you know, at least in my mind, my fallen mind, I think of uh, all the reasons why I can't go. You know, I can't get off work. I can't afford it. There's too much going on in my life. I just can't get away for that time. So, you know, we uh, just sort of uh, discount. I mean, I wasn't hostile to the idea, but I really wasn't pursuing it either. So, um, and I'm sure I mean, maybe most, most of you all kind of feel the same way because, you know, God knows my heart, right? And that's the bad thing, really. God knows our heart. So anyway, fast forward a few months. Um, I was um, uh, looking at my, I got my schedule for, Sept- my work schedule for September on uh, August uh, 18th, 19th, something like that. And I was looking at it, and the first thing that jumped out at me was I had the whole week, September 4th through 10th off. I, did, I didn't ask for it. I, it just, boom, popped up on my schedule. I mean, how many of y'all get a whole week off from work without even asking for it? It just doesn't happen. I mean, oh, you do. Okay, well, one person, two people. So, uh, so yeah, it, you know, it wasn't vacation time. It was just a whole week off from work. And so right then when I saw that, the Lord spoke to my spirit. He says, Jim, I'll give you the whole week off. You know, are you going to, you know, blow me off? Are you going to, you know, think of all these excuses why you can't go? Or are you going to be it and go? And I'm like, Lord, I... You got me. I, I, nothing I can say. So um, I sent a, while I was still in the spirit, because I knew a few seconds later I was going to be back in the flesh, <laughs> I, I fired off an email to, uh, to Jimmy Black and says, Jimmy, I, you know, I got this whole week off. I think the Lord wants me to go to, uh, to Honduras on the trip. And, uh, and he fired back an email in his best Marine Corps, uh, Hura. Whatever that means, I guess that means yes, because the next thing I knew I was on an airplane heading to Honduras. So... Um, had a great week down there. We worked hard, got a lot accomplished, um, spent some time with the kids, spent some time with the staff. Um, I got to see uh, my brother Craig uh, arguing uh, evolution with one of the uh, atheist staff workers. An atheist staff worker down at a, 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 a mission. Isn't that kind of weird? But, uh, but I got to see that. That was great. I really enjoyed that. So, um, so the message I would have to say to you this morning is that, you know, every day, every day of our lives, the Lord's working around us, and He's working in and through us to minister to others. And, you know, sometimes, you know, He makes His will very evident to us, like giving you a whole week off, you know, to go on a mission trip. Sometimes it's kind of subtle, and you have to just uh, pay attention. I guess that's what I'm saying. Just keep your eyes and ears open. Look what's going on around you for ministry opportunities. And then when these opportunities present themselves, you know, step out on faith, be obedient, and, uh, and uh, bless others uh, for that. So that's it. Thank you. I'll try to be real brief. Um, it's never good when you come up here and your mind just goes. <laughs> um, let's see. You know, uh, f- for me, this trip in a lot of ways was, uh, <clears throat> you know, the, the, the real benefit that I think when you do these things is when you come back and you spend a little time and you just kind of, going through your mind, pondering, just uh, taking the stuff to God. And one of the things for me was, was just um, an issue of contrast, you know. And, and um, one of the contrasts that you see, obviously, I mean, it's just it's the simplest thing, but it's just the poverty that's down there. You know, it is, it is a third world country. It is. And there are, there's a, a level of poverty that, you know, you think you see poverty here. It's nothing, you know, compared to what you see down there. And, and, and I, I would venture to guess that the, the poorest family in this church is wealthy beyond imagination for some of those people that are down there. It is unbelievable. And, and so you, you come back and you just realize, wow, how blessed, you know, how blessed we are as a people. Um, 
Another thing that you, that you see um, was just the faith that, that they have down there. And for them, it's, it's faith that's borne out by necessity. They don't have any, there's no option for them. If God does not move, if God does not act, if God does not provide, it just does not happen. And, and if, I was just struck by how, and, and I'll just be honest, how little of that I see in my life, you know. Uh, and, and I, but I don't think that I'm much different than probably some or most of us here um, I don't leave a whole lot of room for God to do stuff because I'm so self, I'm, I'm an American, and I'm so self-sufficient. I do, you know, it's just like, and, and, and I realized how kind of, and it really made me sad how uh, bankrupt I am and how bankrupt that we are because we just don't leave room for God to act and move in faith in our lives sometimes. And it really made me realize uh, I got a ways to go. Um, and then another, another thing that I saw that was just impressive is, you know, um, you, you, you see places where you see unconditional love, you know. Um, obviously, the clearest one is, is God through what he's done through uh, for us through his son, Jesus. Uh, you, you see it again in, in the demonstration and through marriage, you know, how uh, the husband and wife should love each other unconditionally and how that should be a demonstration and a model of, of the cross and what Christ has done. I, I think another place that you see it is in, in loves that a parent has for their child that's an unconditional love but I, I got a glimpse of it down there too where you see these people who come um, and, and and you have these kids that are just helpless and hopeless and people that just poured out, gave up their whole lives to just come to just love them to meet their needs to teach them about the love of God and it was just a, a beautiful thing um, so just you know I, I would encourage you if you get it you know I'm sure we'll go down there uh, this church, this particular church, we should have a special relationship with that organization because it's not just a, a children's home, but it's it's family. You know, that's it's Pastor Mike's father, and and if, if there's a church that should step up to the plate and be involved in this place, it should be us. And um, that's one thing, but also. Um, you know, in the book of James, um, chapter 1, it says that religion that is pure and undefiled before the Lord God is to visit orphans and widows in their time of need. And it, God cannot be more clear to us that that's what we should be doing. So I would just encourage if we, and I'm sure we will, to go on the next trip.
Love's like a hurricane I am a tree Bending beneath The weight of his wind and mercy When all of a sudden I am unaware of these afflictions Eclipsed by glory and I realize just how beautiful you are and how great your affections are for me. And oh, how he loves us so. Oh, how he loves us. How he loves us. Jealous for me, love's like a hurricane. I am a tree bending beneath the weight of his wind and mercy. When all of a sudden I am unaware of these afflictions, eclipsed by glory. And I realize just how beautiful you are and how great your affections are for me. And oh, how he loves us so. Oh, how he loves us. How he loves us so. By the grace inside, if grace is an ocean, we're all sinking. And heaven met earth when he offered its best, and my heart turns violently inside of my chest. And I don't have time to maintain these regrets.
And you may be seated. You may be seated. Now, I know some of you are panicking. It is now 10 after. Brother Mike has just come to the pulpit, and you are very afraid. And you should be. No, I'm just kidding. Um, We are, this morning, um, what we're going to do, if you are with us normally, you know that we've been going through a series in the book of 1 John. It's been a powerful, powerful series. And each week, we just walk right through the text. But this morning, we knew... And I want to thank this team so much for being faithful to the call of going and doing exactly what the Bible calls us to. And thank you so much for the blessing it was for you guys to share with us this morning. What a great blessing and encouragement for all of us to take part in the Great Commission in that way. And we knew that this morning we're not only going to have that, which is a blessing, but we're also going to be uh, looking and taking part in uh, the Lord's Supper this morning. And uh, one thing that we do, we try to take it um, once a month. Um, usually on the third week, sometimes we do it, sometimes we don't, just sometimes things uh, come up. Uh, we try to make it a priority here, however. And so I thought one thing that might be helpful is for us to address the Lord's Supper. I don't hear a whole lot of sermons on that or teaching on the Lord's Supper too much. But here's what I always want to make sure. Oftentimes we just go through the motions and we just do things. And what ultimately happens is we miss the beauty and the truth um, of the things that God wants us to be gripped by, and I believe that one of those is uh, the Lord's Supper. And so what I want to do in just over the next just very few minutes is just kind of share with you just a little bit about what the Bible says about what we're about to take part in. You know, when you look at uh, the when you look at the Word of God, and you take from Genesis all the way to the Book of Revelation, there's kind of something interesting there. There's this really strong connection uh, between having fellowship with God and then also eating a meal, eating and drinking in the presence of God. Uh, it's interesting that that's actually a connection, and it's interesting that you can find it throughout the Word of God. For example, we first see it in the beginning of Genesis in Genesis chapter two. There, God tells uh, Adam and Eve says that they, gives them a command, tells them that they can eat of any of the tree or all of the trees of uh, the garden uh, except for one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, what's interesting about that is that means every time they ate and every time they drank, they were doing it in fellowship and in the presence of God. Every meal was sitting there eating along with God. Isn't that an amazing picture? And so what we find is this, is that that was nice and it was wonderful and sweet fellowship one with another, except something happened and that was the fall. When Adam and Eve sinned and they decided to go and to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God had forbidden, uh, they were cast out because of their sin. They were cast out uh, of the garden. They were pushed out, which meant that they could no longer eat in fellowship with God. They could no longer be in his presence the way that God had originally created it and intended it to be. And so it was the worst day in history was that day. And so what we find is when we move to the book of Exodus, we see kind of something really neat begin to happen. We begin to see some hope. Because, of course, we know what happens in the book of Exodus. There, God's people have been in captivity for some 400 years. They're in Egypt. They're enslaved. And God is faithful to his promises, and he said that he would not forget them, that he would deliver them. So God raises up a prophet by the name of Moses. And Moses comes on the scene, and you probably remember the story. He comes on, and and through the power of God, all these series of plagues begin to happen to try to get the attention of of Pharaoh during that time, who was ruling and reigning and keeping his people enslaved. And and one plague after another comes until finally the last plague is a plague uh, that incorporates the death angel. This death angel's job was to come and to come through all of Egypt. And as he would come by a home, uh, he would kill 
the firstborn in each household, whether they were Israelites or whether they were the Egyptians. But God gave them with that judgment a way of escape. And if the people would, by faith, take the blood of a lamb, and they would, they would smear it there on the doorpost and over the mantle. Then when that death angel came by in God's judgment, he would see that blood and he would then pass over and the firstborn in that home would be saved. Well, when they finally got out and went into the wilderness, what we find is that God gives them a specific command at that point. He tells them that they are to create and to, to um, acknowledge and to take part into a meal, the Passover meal once a year, to commemorate that particular day, the day that God had passed over their sin. And so it was looking back, and so year after year after year, they were taking part. And what it did was it showed not only what God had done, but it also showed a promise to another time. That through what God had done and what was going to do, that there was going to be another lamb that was to come, a greater lamb, his name was Jesus, who was going to die and his blood would be spilt. And anybody who would be covered by his blood, that death too would pass over them as well. So that Passover feast not only let them look behind of the faithfulness of God, but they also looked to the future at a time when they would again be able to eat in a more fuller capacity in the presence of God and fellowship with God. And so we fast forward and we find ourselves in the, book of, um, in the book of Matthew, chapter 26, verses 26 through 9, and this is what happens. Jesus is the night before Jesus is to be crucified. And Jesus calls his disciples together, and they begin to meet together. And there, uh, they begin to look. It's the time of the Passover feast. And they begin to commemorate and to be able to eat that feast. And so they take part. But at the end of that feast, something very interesting happens. Jesus begins to call for a new commemoration of a new type of meal called the Lord's Supper. And so what he does, he gives his command. He says, now, he says, as the word of God says in verse 26, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection... The church, his disciples, all those that would come in faith in him and follow him, begin to meet together. And every time when they would come together, they would commemorate this meal. But what was interesting about this meal is that now they truly were able to come because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. They were now able to come and share in the very presence of God once again. We see a picture of that in Matthew chapter 19 where it says, "...where two or more are gathered." The context there talks about church discipline, but what we understand is where they did church discipline, where they disciplined those that were in the flock, those that were church members, those that were in the fold, was at, guess what, the communion table. That's when they would determine who was in, who was out, who was faithful, and who was not. But he says at the very end there in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 20, it says, where two or more are gathered, there I am in the midst of them. So what happens is we know that God is with us, that God's presence is with us as we come and we take the Lord's Supper. Now, what's interesting, though, is that's not the end of the meals. We know that there is going to be a new meal that would come later. It, would, it was called um, the, um, the, the Baptist dinner on the grounds on Sundays. Do you remember? 
no, that's not what the scriptures say, okay? Uh, that's, we love to eat, we love that, but the Bible does refer to another dinner that occurs. And Jesus began to refer to this in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 29. There he said, I tell you, I shall not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And what he was referring to is what we call the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is found in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 9. And John wrote, And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. At the end times, we see this feast. It's an eschatological feast, which means it occurs in the end times. And what it means is that there is going to be one time when God took the fall and everything that was nasty in this world, and he turned everything right side up. Everything that was lost in the fall, he has restored through the completed work of Jesus Christ. And what he's going to do one day is when a new heaven and new earth is created and heaven comes down and earth joins, then guess what? We're going to be feasting. Those who have placed their faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ are once again in the fullness as God had created it, according to his divine sovereign plan, are going to eat in the very presence of God and all of his glory. And we are not going to only eat in the presence of God, but in the presence of the one who made that fellowship possible, the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Isn't that going to be a wonderful thing? Now, the question is, we talked a lot about this idea of presence, eating in the presence of God. We said that we, have the, we experience the presence of God when we're here at the Lord's Supper. But in what way is God present? In what way is Jesus present? Well, over history, uh, there's been a lot of different views on this. Historically, Roman Catholics, many of you might have a background like me, which is Roman Catholic, family members, Roman Catholic. Your last name can't be Kwiatkowski, and you'd be born in New England without you being Catholic. You guys got that, right? And so that's my background. But here's what the Roman Catholics basically believe. They believe in what's called transubstantiation. They believe that when, you, when, the Lord, when, when the priest, and only the priest can do this, when the priest takes the bread and offers it up to God and blesses it, that it literally uh, transforms into the actual flesh, into the actual body of Jesus Christ. The same with, with the wine as they hold it up. It becomes literally the blood. So when you're taking of communion, you're eating Christ's flesh literally and drinking Christ's flesh literally. Okay, so that's the belief of, uh, uh, of the traditional view um, of Roman Catholics. Now, um, there was another view that came around during the 1600s that came up with Martin Luther. He came on the scene, and as they began to teach against some of the false doctrines of the Catholic Church during that day, uh, Luther came along and he said, no, listen, it doesn't become... Um, actually the blood, it doesn't actually become flesh and blood, but it contains it. So Lutherans today have a view called consubstantiation. Con means with. So what it means is, he says, it doesn't actually become flesh and blood, but it contains the flesh and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's actually present within it. And it's kind of hard to get your arms around it a little bit, but the way that they explain it is this, is that it's kind of like a sponge, a sponge that's placed and absorbs a bunch of water. The sponge itself is not water. But guess what? In it and around it and through it and dripping it is all what? Water that's contained within it. And he says in the same exact way, even though the bread that we take of in the, in, the, in, the, in the grape juice as Baptists, as we take the grape juice, right? As we take those things, what we find is it doesn't, he says it doesn't actually become the bread and the wine, but it, can ta- it doesn't actually become his flesh and his blood, but it contains it in some kind of actually real physical way. 
Well, another man came on the scene by the name of Zwingli. And he holds what most Protestants believe today. And that is it didn't, it doesn't, it's not transformed literally into the flesh and blood. And it doesn't contain the flesh and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it is a symbol of the flesh and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the reasons we hold this is because where is Jesus today? Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Why is he seated at the right hand of the Father? Because his job is done. He came and he was a sacrifice for those to whom he would save. And he was a sacrifice once and for all. And that was it. He does not have to keep being sacrificed over and over and over again. That one sacrifice was enough. Amen? And that's what the writer of Hebrews tells us. It was an excellent sacrifice. It wasn't like that of sheep and goats in the Old Testament. It had to keep being done time and time again. Once and for all, Christ gave his life and that was it. And he's done. And so how is he present with us? Well, he's present with us in a very real way, but spiritually. Why? Because he says, I must go. Why? I must go. And if I go, I will send for you a comforter, the Holy Spirit. And we know that he's here with us. How? Because he lives in us. He dwells in us. That's how the presence of God. And I believe even in a unique way at the Lord's Supper as well. Now, here's another question then. In what ways does this, what we're about to do, symbolize spiritual truths? Well, let me tell you a couple things it symbolizes. First of all, it symbolizes Christ's death. The Word of God says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, 26, it says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, I'm kind of one of those guys that really, really like the visual of the bread, actually real pieces of bread, unleavened bread. And we do unleavened bread because it's a picture that it's a lack of sin. You see that? It's not the big puffy bread, but it's, it's the hard kind of uh, wafery bread. And I like it when somebody takes a big piece of that and just breaks it all up and puts it inside of the plate. Now, I like it. You don't like it because you don't want people's hands all over your bread, okay? So that's why we get these little wafers. But even with these little wafers, what we can see is when we look at it and we see it in all these different parts, we actually look at it and we think to ourselves, as that has been broken, so the body of our Savior was broken for me. As it was torn apart, and as this is in bits and pieces, so his body was in bits and pieces as well. When we see that the grape juice, and as it's all poured out in all these different places, and everybody taking part, we, we look at that and we see that, and we are reminded of ourselves of the blood that was poured out for us. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So we see that blood, and we're reminded, it's my Savior's blood. My Savior died for me. This is what he did for me. For what? For and so we see that in the forgiveness of sin. Secondly, it symbolizes the benefits that we have received on a part of Christ's sacrifice. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 26, it says, Take, eat, this is my body, Jesus said. Then in John 6, 53, he says, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, if you go back and read in John chapter 6, it's really an interesting story because Jesus is telling the folks, hey, you want to, go to, you want to be saved? You want to have a right relationship with me? You want your sins forgiven? You want eternal life? Then eat my flesh, man. Drink my blood. And everyone's sitting back going, whoa. And it says that day many went away and walked away. 
Many of them thought he was literally talking about eating his flesh, and they're thinking, okay, this is not what we signed up for. This is strange. But what was Jesus talking about? He says, unless you take part in my sacrifice, by faith, take hold of me, he goes, you cannot be saved. And so what we find here is this, is we find that, that body and that blood and the benefits that we get is, guess what? New life that previously did not exist. We become alive spiritually, live unto God, a life that did not exist before he saved us, and we also have eternal life. And what I love about this is when, when, they're, when they're passing out that bread and we reach out and we take that bread and we reach out and we take that cup, it's just reminding us again of the faith that we had of receiving into ourselves the completed work of Jesus Christ on that cross in faith. Every time we reach out, it's just like we reached out in faith when we came to faith in him. Third thing it symbolizes is the unity amongst believers. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 17 says this. Paul says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So the idea is this, you know, there's interesting because we're all from different parts of the country or from different countries. There are people from different backgrounds. We drive different cars. We live in different houses. We wear different clothes. We like different music. Uh, some have hair. Some do not. We have all these differences amongst us. But what unifies us here as we come together as a faith community for those who have truly been born again is that what brings us together is Christ. That's what unifies us. Those who are truly born again here at Celebration this morning are in Christ, and Christ is in you. Now, one of the things that I learned when I first came to Nassau County is that everybody kind of is related, okay? I learned this because when I begin to talk about people, that's like, don't talk about my 14th cousin removed from my great aunt's nephew, right? And you're sitting there going, okay, I got to be careful here, right? And so you shouldn't talk about people anyway, but, uh, but that's one of the things you learn. And, and that grows tight, that blood, you know, blood is thicker than water. You've heard that. But I want to let you know there's a bond that draws us so much closer. And I want to let you know that even this morning for you that I know who are truly in the faith of Jesus Christ, that many times I feel a far greater connection and fellowship with you than I do with many of my own blood relatives. Why is that? Because we're unified in a greater bond, the person of Jesus Christ. Now, here's the question for us this morning. Who should take it? Who should take it? Well, here's the deal. First of all, a believer in Christ. We've used that term several times. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine through 30 says this. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment upon himself. That is why many of you are weak and some have died. So what the scriptures are saying is the only people who need to be taking the Lord's Supper this morning if those who have placed their full and complete faith in Jesus Christ while simultaneously repenting of a life of sin. What that means is this, is that you've come to a point in your life that you've understand that you are a sinner, that you were born in sin, and you sin today because you were born with a sin nature. You have been born in sin, and you willfully sin against God, and that sinning is rebellion against God. And the Bible says that the wages of that sin is death, that even if we sin one time, 
And, and even because we were born in that sin, that was enough for God to, for the wrath of God to pour out on us. And the Bible says, if you identify that you are that sinner and know that you cannot be made right before God by anything you do, and you reach out and you receive the completed work of Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for you to take your sin, and you repent and say, I want nothing more to do with the life of sin. I want to pursue righteousness and pursue that which is good and pursue Jesus Christ and by faith accept Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord. The Bible says that those are the folks who should be taking the Lord's Supper. And not only those, but notice this, finally, a believer who has taken part in self-examination. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27 through 29, the scriptures say this, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment to himself. We should examine ourselves then this morning. And one of the things I think is interesting is when Paul's writing this to the first Corinthians, when they would come together and they would do it more of a larger feast where they would eat and drink more, and what would happen is people really weren't caring for one another. He says, some of you come and you don't even wait on other people before they come to the table. He says, some of you just drink and get drunk and you, you take everything up without leaving anything for anybody else. And here's really what he was getting at. He says, not only does our relationship have to be right between us and God, but the only way it could be right between us and God is not only through Christ, but also, listen, is that our relationship with one another is right. But our relationship with one another is right. And so that's why the scriptures tell us, he says, you know, if you're at the altar and you come to be able to give your gift, but you remember that your brother has something against you, leave it. Go to them. Reconcile. Make sure everything is right. So when we come and we, you know that that Lord, Lord's Supper is coming, here's where we come together and say, God, I need to make sure that I have my sins confessed up to date. I have to make sure that if there's something between me and my wife or me and my son or me and my child or me and my daughter, that we need to make sure that this is right and this is on the table and I've sought forgiveness and they've forgiven me. And it says that this is the key. This is what brings the unity of the body together. Now, I've grown up in a Southern Baptist church because I've heard a lot of people talk about rededication. I used to have people every week come by. I'm going to rededicate my life. I'm just going to turn over. They sin like crazy all through the week, purposely sin, purposely rebel. Now I'm going to get rededicated. Well, the Bible doesn't say anything about rededication, but what it does talk about is repenting. Repenting, turning from our sin and placing our faith in Christ and being obedient to him. And so here's what the scriptures teach us. You know what? If there is such thing as a, a rededication, this is where it's done. It's a time where we come together and we sit there and say, God, this is a time that I've got to stop and I've got to make sure and I can't keep going through the hustle and bustle of life. This is where I have to stop right now and I know there might be something against someone that I love or someone that I care for. God, I've sinned before you. God, forgive me. Now is the time. You guys got that? And that's what we do at this particular moment. And so what I'm going to do at this time is I am going to ask the ushers to come forward. Jonathan's going to come and he's going to play. Now, as they're passing this out, as they're passing this out, what's going to happen is, first of all, Jimmy, I'm going to ask if you would to stand right in the back, right back there, if you do that for me. <laughs> During this time, as we pray over this and pass this out, as you're looking in, into your heart and you're looking and you're reflecting on yourself, if you're not in the faith and the Holy Spirit has already begun to work in your heart and in your spirit and he's drawing you and calling you and you said, listen, I need to be saved today. 
then what I'm going to do is whatever exit, man, just, just get up and just walk out that back door, and Brother Jimmy's going to be there standing there for you, and he can lead you and show you what it takes to believe on Christ and to be saved. And for the rest of us, you might have to sit over, and you might have to turn to your wife during this time. You might have to get up. You might have to go get a child. There's a lot of things that might happen that you just sit there and say, I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? There might be another brother and sister in Christ that you've wronged. You might have to go to them and say, I'm sorry, would you forgive me? And as we do this, our hearts are becoming right with God as we begin to take his, bro- his bread and, uh, of his, his body and of his blood, okay? So what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and we're going to start at this time. But during the whole course of this, you do business with God and be faithful to what God's calling you to do. And now we come to observe the ordinance of the Lord's Supper given to us to celebrate in the memory of his broken body and his shed blood.